Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 11, Part 2. On entering the palace, Virginia's first care was to summon the family physician and take care of her unknown charge. Her mother hastened to share with her the charitable office. Alarmed by the riots and trembling for his daughter's safety, who was his only child, the Marquise had flown to St. Clair's convent, and was still employed in seeking her. Messengers were now dispatched on all sides, to inform him that he would find her safe at his hotel, and desire him to hasten thither immediately. His absence gave Virginia liberty to bestow her whole attention upon her patient, and though much disordered herself by the adventures of the night, no persuasion could induce her to quit the bedside of the sufferer. Her constitution being much enfeebled by want and sorrow, it was some time before the stranger was restored to her senses. She found great difficulty in swallowing the medicines prescribed to her, but this obstacle being removed, she easily conquered her disease, which proceeded from nothing but weakness. The attention which was paid her, the wholesome food to which she had been long a stranger, and her joy at being restored to liberty, to society, and, as she dared to hope, to love, all this combined to her speedy re-establishment. From the first moment of knowing her, her melancholy situation, her sufferings almost unparalleled had engaged the affections of her amiable hostess. Virginia felt for her the most lively interest, but how was she delighted when, her guest being sufficiently recovered to relate her history, she recognized in the captive nun the sister of Lorenzo. This victim of monastic cruelty was indeed no other than the unfortunate Agnes. During her abode in the convent she had been well known to Virginia, but her emaciated form, her features altered by affliction, her death universally credited, and her overgrown and matted hair, which hung over her face and bosom in disorder, at first had prevented her being recollected. The prioress had put every artifice in practice to induce Virginia to take the veil, for the heiress of Via Franca would have been no despicable acquisition. Her seeming kindness and unremitted attention so far succeeded that her young relation began to think seriously upon compliance. Better instructed in the disgust and ennui of a monastic life, Agnes had penetrated the designs of the domina. She trembled for the innocent girl, and endeavored to make her sensible of her error. 
she painted in their true colors the numerous inconveniences attached to a convent the continued restraint the low jealousies the petty intrigues the servile court and gross flattery expected by the superior she then bade virginia reflect on the brilliant prospect which presented itself before her the idol of her parents the admiration of madrid endowed by nature and education with every perfection of person and mind she might look forward to an establishment the most fortunate her riches furnished her with the means of exercising in their fullest extent charity and benevolence those virtues so dear to her and her stay in the world would enable her discovering objects worthy her protection which could not be done in the seclusion of a convent her persuasions induced virginia to lay aside all thoughts of the veil but another argument not used by agnes had more weight with her than all the others put together she had seen lorenzo when he visited his sister at the grate his person pleased her and her conversations with agnes generally used to terminate in some question about her brother she who doted upon lorenzo wished for no better than an opportunity to trumpet out his praise she spoke of him in terms of rapture and to convince her auditor how just were his sentiments how cultivated his mind and elegant his expressions she showed her at different times the letters which she received from him she soon perceived that from these communications the heart of her young friend had imbibed impressions which she was far from intending to give but was truly happy to discover she could not have wished her brother a more desirable union heiress of via franca virtuous affectionate beautiful and accomplished virginia seemed calculated to make him happy she sounded her brother upon the subject though without mentioning names or circumstances he assured her in his answers that his heart and hand were totally disengaged and she thought that upon these grounds she might proceed without danger she in consequence endeavoured to strengthen the dawning passion of her friend lorenzo was made the constant topic of her discourse and the avidity with which her auditor listened the sighs which frequently escaped from her bosom and the eagerness with which upon any digression she brought back the conversation to the subject whence it had wandered sufficed to convince agnes that her brother's addresses would be far from disagreeable she at length ventured to mention her wishes to the duke though a stranger to the lady herself he knew enough of her situation to think her worthy his nephew's hand it was agreed between him and his niece that she should insinuate the idea to lorenzo and she only waited his return to madrid to propose her friend to him as his bride the unfortunate events which took place in the interim prevented her from executing her design Virginia wept her loss sincerely, both as a companion and as the only person to whom she could speak of Lorenzo. Her passion continued to prey upon her heart in secret, and she had always determined to confess her sentiments to her mother when accident once more threw their object in her way. The sight of him so near her, his politeness, his compassion, his intrepidity, had combined to give new ardor to her affection when she now found her friend and advocate restored to her she looked upon her as a gift from heaven she ventured to cherish the hope of being united to lorenzo and resolved to use with him his sister's influence 
supposing that before her death agnes might possibly have made the proposal the duke had placed all his nephew's hints of marriage to virginia's account consequently he gave them the most favorable reception on returning to his hotel the relation given him of antonia's death and lorenzo's behavior on the occasion made evident his mistake he lamented the circumstances but the unhappy girl being effectually out of the way he trusted that his designs would yet be executed tis true that lorenzo's situation just then ill suited him for a bridegroom his hopes disappointed at the moment when he expected to realize them and the dreadful and sudden death of his mistress had affected him very severely the duke found him upon the bed of sickness his attendants expressed serious apprehensions for his life but the uncle entertained not the same fears he was of opinion and not unwisely that men have died and worms have ate them but not for love he therefore flattered himself that however deep might be the impression made upon his nephew's heart time and virginia would be able to efface it he now hastened to the afflicted youth and endeavored to console him he sympathized in his distress but encouraged him to resist the encroachments of despair he allowed that he could not but feel shocked at an event so terrible nor could he blame his sensibility but he besought him not to torment himself with vain regrets and rather to struggle with affliction and preserve his life if not for his own sake at least for the sake of those who were fondly attached to him while he labored much to make lorenzo forget antonia's loss the duke paid his court assiduously to virginia and seized every opportunity to advance his nephew's interest in her heart it may easily be expected that agnes was not long without inquiring after don ramon she was shocked to hear the wretched situation to which grief had induced him yet she could not help exulting secretly when she reflected that his illness proved the sincerity of his love the duke undertook the office himself of announcing to the invalid the happiness which awaited him though he omitted no precaution to prepare him for such an event at this sudden change from despair to happiness raymond's transports were so violent as nearly to have proved fatal to him these once passed the tranquillity of his mind the assurance of felicity and above all the presence of agnes who was no sooner re-established by the care of virginia and the marchioness than she hastened to attend her lover soon enabled him to overcome the effects of his late dreadful malady the calm of his soul communicated itself to his body and he recovered with such rapidity as to create universal surprise not so lorenzo antonia's death accompanied with such terrible circumstances weighed upon his mind heavily he was worn down to a shadow nothing could give him pleasure he was persuaded with difficulty to swallow nourishment sufficient for the support of life and a consumption was apprehended the society of agnes formed his only comfort though accident had never permitted their being much together he entertained for her a sincere friendship and attachment perceiving how necessary she was to him she seldom quitted his chamber she listened to his complaints with unwearied attention and soothed him by the gentleness of her manners and by sympathizing with his distress she still inhabited the palace de via franca the possessors of which treated her with marked affection 
the duke had intimated to the marquise his wishes respecting virginia the match was unexceptionable lorenzo was heir to his uncle's immense property and was distinguished in madrid for his agreeable person extensive knowledge and propriety of conduct add to this that the marchioness had discovered how strong was her daughter's prepossession in his favor in consequence the duke's proposal was accepted without hesitation every precaution was taken to induce lorenzo's seeing the lady with those sentiments which she so well merited to excite in her visits to her brother agnes was frequently accompanied by the marchioness and as soon as he was able to move into his antechamber virginia under her mother's protection was sometimes permitted to express her wishes for his recovery this she did with such delicacy the manner in which she mentioned antonia was so tender and soothing and when she lamented her rival's melancholy fate her bright eyes shone so beautiful through her tears that lorenzo could not behold or listen to her without emotion his relations as well as the lady perceived that with every day her society seemed to give him fresh pleasure and that he spake of her in terms of stronger admiration however they prudently kept their observations to themselves no word was dropped which might lead him to suspect their designs they continued their former conduct and attention and left time to ripen into a warmer sentiment the friendship which he already felt for virginia in the meanwhile her visits became more frequent and latterly there was scarce a day of which she did not pass some part by the side of lorenzo's couch he gradually regained his strength but the progress of his recovery was slow and doubtful one evening he seemed to be in better spirits than usual agnes and her lover the duke virginia and her parents were sitting round him he now for the first time entreated his sister to inform him how she had escaped the effects of the poison which st ursula had seen her swallow fearful of recalling those scenes to his mind in which antonia had perished she had hitherto concealed from him the history of her sufferings as he now started the subject himself and thinking that perhaps the narrative of her sorrows might draw him from the contemplation of those on which he dwelt too constantly she immediately complied with his request the rest of the company had already heard her story but the interest which all present felt for its heroine made them anxious to hear it repeated the whole society seconding lorenzo's entreaties agnes obeyed she first recounted the discovery which had taken place in the abbey chapel the domina's resentment and the midnight scene of which st ursula had been a concealed witness though the nun had already described this latter event agnes now related it more circumstantially and at large after which she proceeded in her narrative as follows conclusion of the history of agnes de medina my supposed death was attended with the greatest agonies those moments which i believed my last were embittered by the domina's assurances that i could not escape perdition and as my eyes closed i heard her rage exhale itself in curses on my offence the horror of this situation of a deathbed from which hope was banished of a sleep from which i was only to wake to find myself the prey of flames and furies was more dreadful than i can describe 
when animation revived in me my soul was still impressed with these terrible ideas i looked round with fear expecting to behold the ministers of divine vengeance for the first hour my senses were so bewildered and my brain so dizzy that i strove in vain to arrange the strange images which floated in wild confusion before me if i endeavoured to raise myself from the ground the wandering of my head deceived me everything around me seemed to rock and i sank once more upon the earth my weak and dazzled eyes were unable to bear a nearer approach to a gleam of light which i saw trembling above me i was compelled to close them again and remained motionless in the same posture a full hour elapsed before i was sufficiently myself to examine the surrounding objects when i did examine them what terror filled my bosom i found myself extended upon a sort of wicker couch it had six handles to it which doubtless had served the nuns to convey me to my grave i was covered with a linen cloth several faded flowers were strewn over me on one side lay a small wooden crucifix on the other a rosary of large beads four low narrow walls confined me the top was also covered and in it was fitted a small grated door through which was admitted the little air that circulated in this miserable place a faint glimmering of light which streamed through the bars permitted me to distinguish the surrounding horrors i was oppressed by a noisome suffocating smell and perceiving that the grated door was unfastened i thought that i might possibly effect my escape as i raised myself with this design my hand rested upon something soft i grasped it and advanced towards the light almighty god what was my disgust my consternation in spite of its putridity and the worms which preyed upon it i perceived a corrupted human head and recognized the features of a nun who had died some months before i threw it from me and sank almost lifeless upon my bier when my strength returned this circumstance and the consciousness of being surrounded by the loathsome and mouldering bodies of my companions increased my desire to escape from my fearful prison i again moved towards the light the grated door was within my reach i lifted it without difficulty probably it had been left unclosed to facilitate my quitting the dungeon aiding myself by the irregularity of the walls some of whose stones projected beyond the rest i contrived to ascend them and drag myself out of my prison i now found myself in a vault tolerably spacious several tombs similar in appearance to that whence i had just escaped were ranged along the sides in order and seemed to be considerably sunk within the earth a sepulchral lamp was suspended from the roof by an iron chain and shed a gloomy light through the dungeon emblems of death were seen on every side skulls shoulder blades thigh bones and other relics of mortality were scattered upon the dewy ground each tomb was ornamented with a large crucifix and in one corner stood a wooden statue of st clair to these objects i at first paid no attention a door the only outlet from the vault had attracted my eyes i hastened towards it having wrapped my winding-sheet closely round me i pushed against the door and to my inexpressible terror found that it was fastened on the outside 
I guessed immediately that the prioress, mistaking the nature of the liquor which she had compelled me to drink, instead of poison, had administered a strong opiate. From this I concluded that, being to all appearance dead, I had received the rites of burial, and that, deprived of the power of making my existence known, it would be my fate to expire of hunger. This idea penetrated me with horror, not merely for my own sake, but that of the innocent creature who still lived within my bosom. I again endeavored to open the door, but it resisted all my efforts. I stretched my voice to the extent of its compass, and shrieked for aid. I was remote from the hearing of everyone. No friendly voice replied to mine. A profound and melancholy silence prevailed through the vault, and I despaired of liberty. My long abstinence from food now began to torment me. The tortures which hunger inflicted on me were the most painful and insupportable. Yet they seemed to increase with every hour which passed over my head. Sometimes I threw myself upon the ground, and rolled upon it wild and desperate. Sometimes, starting up, I returned to the door, again strove to force it open, and repeated my fruitless cries for succor. Often was I on the point of striking my temple against the sharp corner of some monument, dashing out my brains, and thus terminating my woes at once. But still the remembrance of my baby vanquished my resolution. I trembled at a deed which equally endangered my child's existence and my own. Then would I vent my anguish in loud exclamations and passionate complaints, and then again, my strength failing me, silent and hopeless, I would sit me upon the base of St. Clair's statue, fold my arms, and abandon myself to sullen despair. Thus passed several wretched hours, death advanced towards me with rapid strides, and I expected that every succeeding moment would be that of my disillusion. Suddenly, a neighboring tomb caught my eye. A basket stood upon it, which, till then, I had not observed. I started from my seat. I made towards it as swiftly as my exhausted frame would permit. How eagerly did I seize the basket on finding it to obtain a loaf of coarse bread and a small bottle of water. I threw myself with avidity upon these humble aliments. They had to all appearance been placed in the vault for several days. The bread was hard, and the water tainted, yet never did I taste food to me so delicious. When the cravings of appetite were satisfied, I busied myself with conjectures upon this new circumstance. I debated whether the basket had been placed there with a view to my necessity. Hope answered my doubts in the affirmative. Yet who could guess me to be in need of such assistance? If my existence was known, why was I detained in this gloomy vault? If I was kept a prisoner, what meant the ceremony of committing me to the tomb? Or if I was doomed to perish with hunger, to whose pity was I indebted for provisions placed within my reach? A friend would not have kept my dreadful punishment a secret. Neither did it seem probable that any enemy would have taken pains to supply me with the means of existence. Upon the whole, I was inclined to think that the Domina's designs upon my life had been discovered by some one of my partisans in the convent, who had found means to substitute an opiate for poison, that she had furnished me with food to support me till she could effect my delivery, and that she was then employed in giving intelligence to my relations of my danger, and pointing out a way to release me from captivity. 
Yet why then was the quality of my provisions so coarse? How could my friend have entered the vault without the domina's knowledge, and if she had entered, why was the door fastened so carefully? These reflections staggered me, yet still this idea was the most favorable to my hopes, and I dwelt upon it in preference. My meditations were interrupted by the sound of distant footsteps. They approached but slowly. Rays of light now darted through the crevices of the door. Uncertain whether the persons who advanced came to relieve me or were conducted by some other motive to the vault, I failed not to attract their notice by loud cries for help. Still the sounds drew near. The light grew stronger. At length, with inexpressible pleasure, I heard the key turning in the lock. Persuaded that my deliverance was at hand, I flew towards the door with a shriek of joy. It opened, but all my hopes of escape died away when the prioress appeared, followed by the same four nuns who had been witnesses of my supposed death. They bore torches in their hands and gazed upon me in fearful silence. I started back in terror. The domina descended into the vault, as did also her companions. She bent upon me a stern, resentful eye, but expressed no surprise at finding me still living. She took the seat which I had just quitted. The door was again closed, and the nuns ranged themselves behind their superior, while the glare of their torches, dimmed by the vapors and dampness of the vault, gilded with cold beams the surrounded monuments. For some moments all preserved a dead and solemn silence. I stood at some distance from the prioress. At length she beckoned me to advance. Trembling at the severity of her aspect, my strength scarce sufficed me to obey her. I drew near, but my limbs were unable to support their burthen. I sank upon my knees, I clasped my hands and lifted them up to her for mercy, but had no power to articulate a syllable. She gazed upon me with angry eyes. "'Do I see a penitent or a criminal?' she said at length. "'Are those hands raised in contrition for your crimes, or in fear of meeting their punishment? Do those tears acknowledge the justice of your doom, or only solicit mitigation of your sufferings?' "'I fear me, tis the latter.' She paused, but kept her eyes still fixed upon mine. "'Take courage,' she continued. "'I wish not for your death, but your repentance. "'The draught which I administered was no poison, but an opiate. "'My intention in deceiving you was to make you feel the agonies of a guilty conscience "'had death overtaken you suddenly, while your crimes were still unrepented. "'You have suffered those agonies. "'I have brought you to be familiar with the sharpness of death, "'and I trust that your momentary anguish will prove to you an eternal benefit. It is not my design to destroy your immortal soul or bid you seek the grave, burthened with the weight of sins unexpiated. No, daughter, far from it. I will purify you with wholesome chastisement and furnish you with full leisure for contrition and remorse. Hear then my sentence. The ill-judged zeal of your friends delayed its execution, but cannot now prevent it. All Madrid believes you to be no more. Your relations are thoroughly persuaded of your death, and the nuns, your partisans, have assisted at your funeral. Your existence can never be suspected. I have taken such precautions as must render it an impenetrable mystery. 
then abandon all thoughts of a world from which you are eternally separated and employ the few hours which are allowed you in preparing for the next this exordium led me to expect something terrible i trembled and would have spoken to deprecate her wrath but a motion of the domina commanded me to be silent she proceeded though of late years unjustly neglected and now opposed by many of our misguided sisters whom heaven convert it is my intention to revive the laws of our order in their full force that against incontinence is severe but no more than so monstrous an offence demands submit to it daughter without resistance you will find the benefit of patience and resignation in a better life than this listen then to the sentence of st clair beneath these vaults there exist prisons intended to receive such criminals as yourself artfully is their entrance concealed and she who enters them must resign all hopes of liberty thither must you now be conveyed food shall be supplied you but not sufficient for the indulgence of appetite you shall have just enough to keep together body and soul and its quality shall be the simplest and coarsest weep daughter weep and moisten your bread with your tears god knows that you have ample cause for sorrow chained down in one of these secret dungeons shut out from the world and light forever with no comfort but religion no society but repentance thus must you groan away the remainder of your days such are st clair's orders submit to them without repining follow me thunderstruck at this barbarous decree my little remaining strength abandoned me i answered only by falling at her feet and bathing them with tears the domina unmoved by my affliction rose from her seat with a stately air she repeated her commands in an absolute tone but my excessive faintness made me unable to obey her mariana and alix raised me from the ground and carried me forwards in their arms the prioress moved on leaning on violante and camilla preceded her with a torch thus passed our sad procession along the passages in silence only broken by my sighs and groans we stopped before the principal shrine of st clair the statue was removed from its pedestal though how i knew not the nuns afterwards raised an iron grate till then concealed by the image and let it fall on the other side with a loud crash the awful sound repeated by the vaults above and the caverns below me roused me from the despondent apathy in which i had been plunged I looked before me, an abyss presented itself to my affrighted eyes, and a steep and narrow staircase whither my conductors were leading me. I shrieked and started back. I implored compassion, rent the air with my cries, and summoned both heaven and earth to my assistance. In vain. I was hurried down the staircase, and forced into one of the cells which lined the cavern's sides my blood ran cold as i gazed upon this melancholy abode the cold vapours hovering in the air the walls green with damp the bed of straw so forlorn and comfortless the chain destined to bind me forever to my prison and the reptiles of every description which as the torches advanced towards them 
I descried hurrying to their retreats, struck my heart with terrors almost too exquisite for nature to bear. Driven by despair to madness, I burst suddenly from the nuns who held me. I threw myself upon my knees before the prioress, and besought her mercy in the most passionate and frantic terms. If not on me, said I, look at least with pity on that innocent being whose life is attached to mine. Great is my crime, but let not my child suffer for it. My baby has committed no fault. Oh, spare me for the sake of my unborn offspring, whom ere it tastes life, your severity dooms to destruction. The prioress drew back hastily. She forced her habit from my grasp, as if my touch had been contagious. What? she exclaimed, with an exasperated air. What? Dare you plead for the produce of your shame? Shall a creature be permitted to live, conceived in guilt so monstrous? Abandoned woman, speak for him no more. Better that the wretch should perish than live. Begotten in perjury, incontinence and pollution, it cannot fail to prove a prodigy of vice. Hear me, thou guilty. Expect no mercy from me, either for yourself or brat. Rather, pray that death may seize you before you produce it, or, if it must see the light, that its eyes may immediately be closed again forever. No aid shall be given you in your labor. Bring your offspring into the world yourself. Feed it yourself. Nurse it yourself. Bury it yourself. God grant that the latter may happen soon, lest you receive comfort from the fruit of your iniquity. This inhuman speech, the threats which it contained, the dreadful sufferings foretold to me by the Domina and her prayers for my infant's death on whom, though unborn, I already doted, were more than my exhausted frame could support. Uttering a deep groan, I fell senseless at the feet of my unrelenting enemy. I know not how long I remained in this situation, but I imagine that some time must have elapsed before my recovery, since it sufficed the prioress and her nuns to quit the cavern. When my senses returned, I found myself in silence and solitude. I heard not even the retiring footsteps of my persecutors. All was hushed, and all was dreadful. I had been thrown upon the bed of straw. The heavy chain which I had already eyed with terror was wound around my waist and fastened me to the wall. A lamp glimmering with dull, melancholy rays through my dungeon permitted my distinguishing all its horrors. It was separated from the cavern by a low and irregular wall of stone. A large chasm was left open in it, which formed the entrance, for door there was none. A leaden crucifix was in front of my straw couch. A tattered rug lay near me, as did also a chaplet of beads, and not far from me stood a pitcher of water, and a wicker basket containing a small loaf and a bottle of oil to supply my lamp. With a despondent eye did I examine this scene of suffering. When I reflected that I was doomed to pass in it the remainder of my days, my heart was rent with bitter anguish. I had once been taught to look forward to a lot so different. At one time my prospects had appeared so bright, so flattering. Now all was lost to me. Friends, comfort, society, happiness. In one moment I was deprived of all. Dead to the world, dead to pleasure, I lived to nothing but the sense of misery. 
how fair did that world seem to me from which i was forever excluded how many loved objects did it contain whom i never should behold again as i threw a look of terror round my prison as i shrunk from the cutting wind which howled through my subterraneous dwelling the change seemed so striking so abrupt that i doubted its reality that the duke de medina's niece that the destined bride of the marquis de las cisternas one bred up in affluence related to the noblest family in spain and rich in a multitude of affectionate friends that she should in one month become a captive separated from the world forever weighed down with chains and reduced to support life with the coarsest elements appeared a change so sudden and incredible that i believed myself the sport of some frightful vision its countenance convinced me of my mistake with but too much certainty every morning i looked for some relief from my sufferings every morning my hopes were disappointed at length i abandoned all idea of escaping i resigned myself to my fate and only expected liberty when she became the companion of death my mental anguish and the dreadful scenes in which i had been an actress advanced the period of my labor in solitude and misery abandoned by all unassisted by art uncomforted by friendship with pangs which if witnessed would have touched the hardest heart was i delivered of my wretched burden it came alive into the world but i knew not how to treat it or by what means to preserve its existence i could only bathe it with tears warm it in my bosom and offer up prayers for its safety i was soon deprived of this mournful employment the want of proper attendance my ignorance how to nurse it the bitter cold of the dungeon and the unwholesome air which inflated its lungs terminated my sweet babe's short and painful existence it expired in a few hours after its birth and i witnessed its death with agonies which beggar all description but my grief was unavailing my infant was no more nor could all my sighs impart to its little tender frame the breath of a moment i rent my winding sheet and wrapped in it my lovely child i placed it on my bosom its soft arm folded round my neck and its pale cold cheek resting upon mine thus did its lifeless limbs repose while i covered it with kisses talked to it wept and moaned over it without remission day or night camilla entered my prison regularly once every twenty-four hours to bring me food in spite of her flinty nature she could not behold this spectacle unmoved she feared that grief so excessive would at length turn my brain and in truth i was not always in my proper senses from a principle of compassion she urged me to permit the corpse to be buried but to this i never would consent i vowed not to part with it while i had life its presence was my only comfort and no persuasion could induce me to give it up it soon became a mass of putridity and to every eye was a loathsome and disgusting object to every eye but a mother's in vain did human feelings bid me recoil from this emblem of mortality with repugnance i withstood and vanquished that repugnance i persisted in holding my infant to my bosom in lamenting it loving it adoring it 
hour after hour have i passed upon my sorry couch contemplating what had once been my child i endeavored to retrace its features through the livid corruption with which they were overspread during my confinement this sad occupation was my only delight and at that time worlds should not have bribed me to give it up even when released from my prison i brought away my child in my arms the representations of my two kind friends here she took the hands of the marchioness and virginia and pressed them alternately to her lips at length persuaded me to resign my unhappy infant to the grave yet i parted from it with reluctance however reason at length prevailed i suffered it to be taken from me and it now reposes in consecrated ground i before mentioned that regularly once a day camilla brought me food she sought not to embitter my sorrows with reproach she bade me tis true resign all hopes of liberty and worldly happiness but she encouraged me to bear with patience my temporary distress and advised me to draw comfort from religion my situation evidently affected her more than she ventured to express but she believed that to extenuate my fault would make me less anxious to repent it often while her lips painted the enormity of my guilt in glaring colors her eyes betrayed how sensible she was to my sufferings in fact i am certain that none of my tormentors for the three other nuns entered my prison occasionally were so much actuated by the spirit of oppressive cruelty as by the idea that to afflict my body was the only way to preserve my soul nay even this persuasion might not have such weight with them and they might have thought my punishment too severe had not their good dispositions been repressed by blind obedience to their superior her resentment existed in full force my project of elopement having been discovered by the abbot of the capuchins she supposed herself lowered in his opinion by my disgrace and in consequence her hate was inveterate she told the nuns to whose custody i was committed that my fault was of the most heinous nature that no sufferings could equal the offence and that nothing could save me from eternal perdition but punishing my guilt with the utmost severity the superior's word is an oracle to but too many of a convent's inhabitants the nuns believed whatever the prioress chose to assert though contradicted by reason and charity they hesitated not to admit the truth of her arguments they followed her injunctions to the very letter and were fully persuaded that to treat me with lenity or to show the least pity for my woes would be a direct means to destroy my chance for salvation camilla being most employed about me was particularly charged by the prioress to treat me with harshness in compliance with these orders she frequently strove to convince me how just was my punishment and how enormous was my crime she bade me think myself too happy in saving my soul by mortifying my body and even threatened me sometimes with eternal perdition yet as i before observed she always concluded by words of encouragement and comfort and though uttered by camilla's lips i easily recognized the domina's expressions once and once only the prioress visited me in my dungeon she then treated me with the most unrelenting cruelty she loaded me with reproaches taunted me with my frailty 
and when i implored her mercy told me to ask it of heaven since i deserved none on earth she even gazed upon my lifeless infant without emotion and when she left me i heard her charge camilla to increase the hardships of my captivity unfeeling woman but let me check my resentment she has expiated her errors by her sad and unexpected death peace be with her and may her crimes be forgiven in heaven as i forgive her my sufferings on earth thus did i drag on a miserable existence far from growing familiar with my prison i beheld it every moment with new horror the cold seemed more piercing and bitter the air more thick and pestilential my frame became weak feverish and emaciated i was unable to rise from the bed of straw and exercise my limbs in the narrow limits to which the length of my chain permitted me to move though exhausted faint and weary i trembled to profit by the approach of sleep my slumbers were constantly interrupted by some obnoxious insect crawling over me sometimes i felt the bloated toad hideous and pampered with the poisonous vapors of the dungeon dragging his loathsome length along my bosom sometimes the quick cold lizard roused me leaving his slimy track upon my face and entangling itself in the tresses of my wild and matted hair often have i at waking found my fingers ringed with the long worms which bred in the corrupted flesh of my infant at such times i shrieked with terror and disgust and while i shook off the reptile trembled with all a woman's weakness such was my situation when camilla was suddenly taken ill a dangerous fever supposed to be infectious confined her to her bed every one except the lay sister appointed to nurse her avoided her with caution and feared to catch the disease she was perfectly delirious and by no means capable of attending to me the domina and the nuns admitted to the mystery had latterly entirely given me over to camilla's care in consequence they busied themselves no more about me and occupied by preparing for the approaching festival it is more than probable that i never once entered into their thoughts of the reason of camilla's negligence i have been informed since my release by the mother saint ursula at that time i was very far from suspecting its cause on the contrary i waited for my jailer's appearance at first with impatience and afterwards with despair one day passed away another followed it the third arrived still no camilla still no food i knew the lapse of time by the wasting of my lamp to feed which fortunately a week's supply of oil had been left me i supposed either that the nuns had forgotten me or that the domina had ordered them to let me perish the latter idea seemed the most probable yet so natural is the love of life that i trembled to find it true though embittered by every species of misery my existence was still dear to me and i dreaded to lose it every succeeding minute proved to me that i must abandon all hopes of relief i was become an absolute skeleton my eyes already failed me and my limbs were beginning to stiffen i could only express my anguish and the pangs of that hunger which gnawed my heartstrings by frequent groans whose melancholy sound the vaulted roof of the dungeon re-echoed i resigned myself to my fate 
I already expected the moment of disillusion when my guardian angel, when my beloved brother, arrived in time to save me. My sight, grown dim and feeble, at first refused to recognize him, and when I did distinguish his features, the sudden burst of rapture was too much for me to bear. I was overpowered by the swell of joy at once more beholding a friend, and that a friend so dear to me. Nature could not support my emotions, and took her refuge in insensibility. You already know what are my obligations to the family of Villafranca, but what you cannot know is the extent of my gratitude, boundless as the excellence of my benefactors. Lorenzo, Ramon, names so dear to me, teach me to bear with fortitude this sudden transition from misery to bliss. So lately a captive, oppressed with chains, perishing with hunger, hidden from the light, excluded from society, hopeless, neglected, and, as I feared, forgotten, suffering every inconvenience of cold and want, now restored to life and liberty, enjoying all the comforts of affluence and ease, surrounded by those who are most loved by me, and on the point of becoming his bride who has long been wedded to my heart. My happiness is so exquisite, so perfect, that scarcely can my brain sustain the weight. One only wish remains ungratified. It is to see my brother in his former health, and to know that Antonia's memory is buried in her grave. Granted this prayer, I have nothing more to desire. I trust that my past sufferings have purchased from heaven the pardon of my momentary weakness. That I have offended, offended greatly and grievously, I am fully conscious, but let not my husband, because he once conquered my virtue, doubt the propriety of my future conduct. I have been frail and full of error, but I yielded not to the warmth of constitution. Raymond, affection for you betrayed me. I was too confident of my strength, but I depended no less on your honor than my own. I had vowed never to see you more. Had it not been for the consequences of that unguarded moment, my resolution had been kept. Fate willed it otherwise, and I cannot but rejoice at its decree. Still, my conduct has been highly blamable, and while I attempt to justify myself, I blush at recollecting my imprudence. Let me then dismiss the ungrateful subject, first assuring you, Raymond, that you shall have no cause to repent our union, and that, the more culpable have been the errors of your mistress, the more exemplary shall be the conduct of your wife. Here Agnes ceased, and the Marquise replied to her address in terms equally sincere and affectionate. Lorenzo expressed his satisfaction at the prospect of being so closely connected with a man for whom he had ever entertained the highest esteem. The Pope's bull had fully and effectually released Agnes from her religious engagements. The marriage was therefore celebrated as soon as the needful preparations had been made, for the Marquise wished to have the ceremony performed with all possible splendor and publicity. This being over, and the bride having received the compliments of Madrid, she departed with Don Ramon for his castle in Andalusia. Lorenzo accompanied them, as did also the Marchioness de Villafranca and her lovely daughter. It is needless to say that Theodore was of the party, and it would be impossible to describe his joy at his master's marriage. 
Previous to his departure, the Marquis, to atone in some measure for his past neglect, made some inquiries relative to Elvida. Finding that she, as well as her daughter, had received many services from Leonella and Jacinta, he showed his respect to the memory of his sister-in-law, by making the two women handsome presents. Lorenzo followed his example. Leonella was highly flattered by the attentions of noblemen so distinguished, and Jacinta blessed the hour on which her house was bewitched. On her side, Agnes failed not to reward her convent friends. The worthy mother St. Ursula, to whom she owed her liberty, was named, at her request, superintendent of the Ladies of Charity. This was one of the best and most opulent societies throughout Spain. Bertha and Cornelia, not choosing to quit their friend, were appointed to principal charges in the same establishment. As to the nuns who had aided the domina in persecuting Agnes, Camilla, being confined by illness to her bed, had perished in the flames which consumed St. Clair's convent. Mariana, Alix, and Violante, as well as two more, had fallen victims to the popular rage. The three others who had in council supported the domina's sentence were severely reprimanded and banished to religious houses in obscure and distant provinces. Here they languished away a few years, ashamed of their former weakness and shunned by their companions with aversion and contempt. Nor was the fidelity of Flora permitted to go unrewarded. Her wishes being consulted, she declared herself impatient to revisit her native land. In consequence, a passage was procured for her to Cuba, where she arrived in safety, loaded with the presence of Ramon and Lorenzo. The debts of gratitude discharged, Agnes was at liberty to pursue her favorite plan. Lodged in the same house, Lorenzo and Virginia were eternally together. The more he saw of her, the more was he convinced of her merit. On her part, she laid herself out to please, and not to succeed was for her impossible. Lorenzo witnessed with admiration her beautiful person, elegant manners, innumerable talents, and sweet disposition. He was also much flattered by her prejudice in his favor, which she had not sufficient art to conceal. However, his sentiments partook not of that ardent character which had marked his affection for Antonia. The image of that lovely and unfortunate girl still lived in his heart, and baffled all Virginia's efforts to displace it. Still, when the Duke proposed to him the match which he wished so earnestly to take place, his nephew did not reject the offer. The urgent supplication of his friends and the lady's merit conquered his repugnance to entering into new engagements. He proposed himself to the Marquise de Villafranca, and was accepted with joy and gratitude. Virginia became his wife, nor did she ever give him cause to repent his choice. His esteem increased for her daily. Her unremitted endeavors to please him could not but succeed. His affection assumed stronger and warmer colors. Antonia's image was gradually effaced from his bosom, and Virginia, became sole mistress of that heart, which she well deserved to possess without a partner. The remaining years of Ramon and Agnes, of Lorenzo and Virginia, were happy as can be those allotted to mortals, born to be the prey of grief and sport of disappointment. 
the exquisite sorrows with which they had been afflicted made them think lightly of every succeeding woe they had felt the sharpest darts in misfortune's quiver those which remained appeared blunt in comparison having weathered fate's heaviest storms they looked calmly upon its terrors or if ever they felt affliction's casual gales they seemed to them gentle as zephyrs which breathe over summer seas End of chapter 11, part 2. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.